Good to be here. I've been gone a lot this summer. I am back. It's a new Sunday. We start a new series on 1 Corinthians. So all kinds of uh, stuff going on. There's lots that's going on in our culture, too, um, that we haven't directly addressed. Uh, everybody's aware of all the situation in Charlottesville and all of the racial uh, unrest and commentary about that. And I'm not going to address that directly because we have started 1 Corinthians, and 1 Corinthians addresses that. So we're going to deal with that as we get to it. More recently, um, there was this big statement that a bunch of evangelical leaders did on human sexuality. And uh, there's lots of commentary. My Facebook blew up with all that stuff, pro and con, and uh, all of that. And uh, that's a major issue, but... We're not going to deal with that directly either because 1 Corinthians deals with that. And when we get to it, we'll be able to deal with it. And I think often dealing with controversial matters is much easier when you get to them in the Scripture and deal with how does the Scripture address that and sort of lays out the framework. However, 1 Corinthians has nothing to say that I am aware of about hurricanes. So... Uh, Hurricane Harvey has devastated the entire Houston metro area. So before I start this sermon, I actually want to uh, talk about that and pray uh, for that very quickly. Uh, we have 32 PCA churches in Houston Metro Presbytery. And um, there are Christ the King, City Church, Oaklawn, Global Presbyterian Covenant, Redeemer, Sugarland, Spring, Cypress, Faith, Korean Faith, Han Hanmeum, Church of the Lord, Open Door, Yewan Mission, Yedarm Church. Uh, that's a great name, too, Yedarm Church. Where do you go? Uh, King's Cross, Bay Area, Peace Presbyterian, Korean Presbyterian, Grace Woodland, Southwest Hosanna, Tree of Life, Christ Church, Katy. And I don't think that's all 32, but that's the only ones I could find. Um, and uh, obviously, they all have pastors. There's about 50 pastors in that presbytery. And Mission in North America now has three disaster relief specialists sort of on the ground, Rick Lenz, John Brown, and Marty Huddleston. And they're operating out of Grace Woodlands Church, which wasn't affected by the flooding and apparently has a giant parking lot. So they have all these trailers and stuff that they've brought in. Um, and uh, so uh, particularly, and uh, I have a slide. Where's the clicker? Um, that's I-10. Uh, if you've ever driven to Houston, you've driven there. Uh, that is not the Galveston Bay. And uh, so uh, that picture got posted by one of the pastors down there in Beaumont uh, who had to be rescued by the National Guard out of his home. And we've had two churches that I know of that have been flooded, two church buildings, but obviously the whole area. So... Um, yeah, that's the highway. That doesn't look like a highway, but it is. Um, so let's take time and just this, particularly over the next uh, week, it's going to take weeks for them to recover, uh, months. But um, right now, the uh, sort of way west of uh, Houston and way east of Houston is much more affected, actually, than the downtown uh, is what they're saying. So we want to pray for them. Um, so join me in praying for uh, people in, in Houston. 
Our Lord Jesus, uh, we ask this morning that you would be with the people in the Houston metro area and Beaumont and uh, all the places that have been affected by the flooding. All of them, especially your children, our brothers and sisters, pastors, elders, wives, children, the workers down there helping, uh, those who are scared, those who've lost everything, those who are about to lose everything. Father, protect them. Uh, protect them physically, protect them emotionally, protect those whose lives are in danger, protect those who are risking their lives to save the lives of others. Lord, let the waters recede and unify and enable your church to love, care, house, feed, and be the very presence of Christ to the thousands of people whose lives have been upended. Lord, we know there's flooding in other parts of the world too, uh, in Sri Lanka and other places. Uh, and uh, so we pray the same prayers uh, for those people in those places as well. Lord, you are the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. So we plead with you to display yourself as such to all those affected by this hurricane from Corpus Christi to Houston to Beaumont, uh, all the other places of Texas and Louisiana. Um, may your mercies be new to them uh, every morning of every day. Uh, we know you are the God of storms and stillness. So bring help to those on the Gulf Coast who are suffering financial, emotional, physical hardship to those grieving death, uh, destitution to those who are displaced and dislocated, uh, bolster, brace, uh, buttress, all of those who are lending aid in whatever capacity. Remind us that we need you and your help. Uh, may your presence be known and felt in the Houston metro area this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. So now turn to your sermon outline. It's got a lot of white space today, uh, which either means that you're supposed to take a lot of notes or I was like really tired when I did this and just couldn't come up with so much stuff. Um, but it says crosswords uh, on it. We're not talking about puzzles. Um, and so we'll get to that. But let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So you'll go to the New Testament and open there. If you're in a gospel, go right. If you get to all those little books, go back to the left. It's right after Romans. First Corinthians, we're going to read the first nine verses today. Uh, please listen carefully as this is God's word. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you are enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and as always, we need it. 
We need to be reminded of what makes the greatness of the gospel, the power of the cross, and the glory of Christ. We need uh, to know the sufficiency of your word for all the problems of our lives. We need to know that whatever we struggle with as individuals, loneliness, idolatry, immorality, doubt, so much more, the answer to those issues are found in Christ. We need to know that whatever we struggle with is a church, a division, gossip, grumbling, false teaching, lack of commitment, fear of others, confusion, and so much more. The answer to all of those issues are also found in Christ. Thank you that 1 Corinthians is a love letter to unlovely people, pointing them and us to our Redeemer. We need the redemption he offers. Bring us to the cross. Bring us the grace of repentance. Soften our hard hearts. Have mercy upon us. So we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. You may notice the title of the introduction. It's a little unusual, church as a contact sport. Maybe it's a little unfair. But think for a moment about that name, contact sports. What does that mean? Most people immediately think of college or pro football, uh, where contact is usually a devastating physical blow by a giant person, celebrated by many as a good hit. Of course, with all the concern developing around the long-term impact of repetitive concussions, uh, we now are starting to wonder about the good hit. Perhaps that kind of blow leaves an impact not just on our bodies, but on our minds, our wills, and our emotions as well. Of course, we could be talking about baseball, basketball, hockey, or soccer. Also, contact sports, which also cause injuries that could be more than physical. So now let's move from the world of contact sports to the world of contact church. I think some like new program is about to be announced. Um, No, and the reality is no one has ever tackled me after a bad sermon. (laughs) Not looking for that to change. Uh, But I've been verbally laid out. We have very few people that suffer from repetitive concussions received at church. But we've had people suffer from repetitive judgments or serial condemnation. And while the blows uh, received at church tend not to be physical and leave few broken bones, uh, the blows we do receive leave an impact, perhaps not on our bodies so much, uh, but most definitely on our minds, wills, and emotions. And there's more than one book, article, blog, or sermon entitled, Why Do Christians Shoot Their Own Wounded? It happens so often, it seems that part of our sinful nature entails not getting along with each other. Every church, every church member has to be diligent about facing discord, division, and disunity. Imagine a church racked by division. Powerful leaders promote themselves against each other, each with his own band of loyal followers. One of them is having an affair with his stepmother, and instead of Disciplining him, some in the church are boasting of his freedom in Christ. Believers sue one another in secular court. 
Some like to visit prostitutes, of course, for evangelistic purposes only. And as a backlash against this rampant immorality, there's another faction in the church that's promoting celibacy. Complete abstinence for all believers, even those who are married, as the new Christian ideal. Still other debates rage about how decisively new Christians should break from their pagan past. Disagreements abound about men's and women's roles in the church. And as if all of this wasn't enough, um, there's alleged prophecies and speaking in tongues occurring, but not in a constructive way. And people are confused, and on top of everything else, there's a number of people who don't even believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Does that sound like anything you've heard of? Maybe no contemporary church has faced this exact cluster of problems all at once. But all of those issues remain remarkably current. The description, of course, is not of any church around here, I hope. Um, but of the first century church in Corinth. And yet if we understand the nature of these problems and the nature of Paul's divinely inspired instruction in response to them, then we'll be able to gain great insight into the numerous debates that threaten to divide today's church and keep it from having the kind of impact that God wants it to have. So I have to be honest as we start moving into this. I have sort of a... uh, fear attraction for 1 Corinthians, having the desire to preach the book and a reluctance for the same reasons. 1 Corinthians, more than any other New Testament epistle, with just a Bible word for a New Testament letter, addresses how a church is to function and behave. It's one of the most practical of the epistles, tackling not only matters of belief, but of practice. How should a church worship? What can women do in the church? How do we approach the Lord's Supper? What are spiritual gifts? How should they be used? And there's a whole host of other issues. Church discipline, divorce and remarriage, sexual practices, handling disputes, and on and on. And for those of you that want more application in our sermons, this is the book for you. Because application is what this book is all about. And that's why I want to preach uh, 1 Corinthians. It will take us through church life. But it's also why I hesitate to preach 1 Corinthians. Because application is actually what divided the Corinthian church. The Corinthian believers approach church from different perspectives. And I know that as we address various issues in this book, um, we too will address them from different and sometimes conflicting viewpoints. And to preach 1 Corinthians in in the church is to invite debate. But more daunting than debate is the command of Scripture to be obedient to the Scripture. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I get a little unnerved by the thought that I have to bend my presuppositions about church life and about family life and about personal life to what a careful study of the scriptures reveals. I have my ideas of what 1 Corinthians teaches about the church, but I'm in the same position as you of having to place those ideas under the careful study of what scripture actually teaches. So 
Most of you know by now I don't count speed as a virtue in preaching through a book of the Bible, uh, nor will we be skipping any verses. So I'll let you speculate how long it will take us to get to the end of the book, but you can safely plan on ending around Easter time next year. So we're going to start by discovering that this is a church in need of grace. A little background. Paul had visited the city of Corinth and planted a church there around A.D. 49. It's a strategically located city. It's positioned on this narrow four-mile isthmus, the stretch of land, uh, actually harbors on both sides, that connects northern and southern Greece. It had been destroyed by the Romans in 146 B.C., and was rebuilt a hundred years later by Julius Caesar as a Roman colony and became the capital of that province. And because of its location, um, connecting sort of these two harbors, uh, east and west side, uh, it became very wealthy, a major trade center. And so everybody's passing through. And whenever communities are located in a place where economic opportunity abounds... It attracts people from all over the place, and in this case, from all over the world. It's a vast melting pot of cultures, of which make it a place of very stark contrasts. It's all starting to sound a little familiar, because I think much of those things could be said about where we live and the metropolitan area that we live in and how it attracts people from all over the world and all different cultures and all kinds of uh, folks. And writing sometime after Paul's stay in the city, uh, one ancient visitor to Corinth said, the sordidness of the rich and the misery of the poor were extraordinary. So you have this major sort of income inequality issue as well. Uh, He said the place is abounding in luxuries, but inhabited by an ungracious people, at least on Facebook. No, it doesn't say that part. Um, it's a city that's noted for immorality and debauchery. It's a word we don't use often. The great temple of Aphrodite was located on the top of the hill overlooking the city. It had thousands of temple prostitutes working there as priestesses. Below it, there's the temple of Apollo, which celebrated homosexuality. And so in time, to Corinthian eyes became a synonym for immorality and adultery and any kind of perversity. Um, It was basically a giant red light district. But it's into this dark, cosmopolitan city. The Apostle Paul goes to plant a church. And uh, Acts 18 tells us that he did that, and he went with Priscilla and Aquila, and they planted a church there. And it took him about a year and a half. And I got the church up and running, and then he went on, uh, went back to Ephesus, uh, where he stayed for three years. And while he was in Ephesus, he started hearing reports about the church in Corinth, and uh, things are not going well back in Corinth. And so the allure of this surrounding culture um, started pulling at all these young believers, and sharp divisions had emerged, and sexual sin was still a major struggle, and there was all sorts of oddities of pagan philosophy and mystery cults, sort of the forerunners of Gnosticism, um, 
and was creeping into the teaching. So there's false teaching going on as well. And Paul's letter is designed to address every single one of those problems and those issues. And it doesn't take a lot of imagination, I think, to see why 1 Corinthians might have something relevant to say to our context and to our culture and to our community. Many of the issues facing the believers in Corinth characterize uh, the struggles facing Christians today as we wrestle with the call of Jesus to be holy while the old life is pulling at us and drawing us back into the sinful patterns of the world. And what we're going to see as the Apostle Paul addresses them over and over again is he doesn't respond to the Corinthians with angry rebuke. Um, a few times he gets direct. He doesn't give them a whole list of uh, how-to instructions to live your best life now. Instead, 1 Corinthians points these new Christians back to the fundamental truths about God and the gospel of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that's amazing. They have massive problems. And you read through 1 Corinthians and you'll notice that no matter how complex the problem, how difficult the issue, again and again, Paul's answer is very basic. It's knowing God revealed in Jesus Christ, crucified on the cross, risen from the dead by the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. That's it. Grasping and learning how to apply with increasing clarity and courage the gospel of God's grace for sinners and all the details of life. Every issue that comes up is basically answered with, think of the cross, think of Jesus, that's where we start. And that's why I called the series Cross Words. Because every issue he faces, the cross and Jesus is certainly part, if not all, of the answer. That's his response to every problem the Corinthians are dealing with. Paul's agenda in this letter, uh, if we allow God's word to do its work in our lives, then God's agenda for us in this letter uh, for the next weeks and months ahead is to strip out all of the old, tangled, confused wiring of the world and rewire our spiritual systems with the simple truth of the good news of Jesus Christ. And 1 Corinthians is immensely exciting and personally intimidating because it deals with real issues that every one of us struggles with, even now. And what work of grace might the Lord intend in our lives, in our life together as a church, as we come under the teaching of this book? I want you over the next weeks and months to pray with me that God would take hold of our hearts and minds and our lives by his word in the book of 1 Corinthians and start doing that rewiring work within us. So let's get started. This word, uh, this book begins with words about call and calling. Call and calling. That's the first blank. There's only like two, I think, so it's an easy day. Um, call and calling. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. I know we have people who are expecting Sosthenes is an amazing name just to consider. Anyway, 
to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together, will all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an interesting couple of verses. And uh, we're actually going to spend most of our time this morning right here in these uh, three verses, particularly the first two, because I think they're foundational. Not just for understanding 1 Corinthians, but for understanding how to live the Christian life. We see the word call used three times in three different ways in these verses. The first time call is used is in verse 1. And here we find the issue of authority. Right off the bat, Paul addresses the issue of authority. Verse 1, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Now, at first glance, you could say Paul's simply following the conventional letter-writing style of the ancient world. You begin with the author, and then you mention the uh, addressee, and then you offer a word of greeting. And that's mostly Paul's pattern. Not every time, but most of the time. But in the light of the rest of the book of 1 Corinthians, it's clear there's a lot more going on here. In chapters 3 and 4, uh, Paul's going to have to defend himself and his ministry from those who are challenging his authority. They're basically saying, why should Paul tell us what to believe or how to behave? Why, why listen to Paul? And that's their question and their challenge. And so Paul is reminding the Corinthians right off the bat of his apostolic credentials. Called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. The will of God called him. The will of God made him an apostle. His is not a derived authority. He didn't receive it from men. He wasn't made an apostle by the church. He was called by the will of God, which invests him with an authority that doesn't belong to other Christians. For example, notice the contrast between Paul and Sosthenes. Paul is called by the will of God to be an apostle, Sosthenes is our brother. Now, if Sosthenes is the same man mentioned in Acts 18, and I think it is, this is actually a wonderful title for him. Because Luke told us in Acts 18, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. So at this point in Acts 18, there's no indication at all that he's a Christian. In fact, he has ample reason to reject Paul and Paul's message. When the Jews in Corinth brought charges against Paul before Gallio, who's the proconsul, kind of like uh, the ruling governor uh, guy, um, because Paul's making converts from the synagogue, out of the synagogue, he's actually leading members of the synagogue to Jesus and from all the Gentiles in the city, and uh, so they brought charges, and Gallio, the proconsul, just dismissed the charges uh, out of hand. And in their frustration and rage, the mob turns on poor Sosthenes. And they beat him because he's the ruler of the synagogue, and this was happening on his watch. So let me first say that if, like, bad things happen in the assembly, you shouldn't beat the leader of the assembly. Okay, we're just going to put that out on the table. Okay, That's, that would be a bad application of those verses. 
Um, but nonetheless, they turn their rage on him because they kind of think he's allowing this stuff to happen. And they beat him up. But it's because of Paul's ministry. It's because Paul's teaching people about Jesus. It's because the people they know in the synagogue are coming to Christ and they're angry. This is Paul's fault. And I think that's incentive enough for Sosthenes to hate Paul and to hate his message. He got beat up. But here's the great power of the gospel to change even the hardest heart. Paul tells the Corinthians that Sosthenes is now our brother. Praise God. And I think, you know, those of you who have been praying for and witnessing and sharing and talking to, you know, family members and loved ones and friends, some of you for years, you've seen no signs of change. And God can take the least likely people, those with every reason to reject the gospel, and make them brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what he's done in the life of Sosthenes. So don't stop praying and sharing and talking and loving those people. You don't control God's timing. If he can change this guy who had every reason to hate Paul and make him our brother, he can change those folks too. But for all the glory of that, we have to recognize that Sosthenes is our brother. Where Paul is called by the will of God to be an apostle. He is the spokesman of Christ by divine appointment. When Sosthenes speaks to the Christians, they might listen, they might not. He might speak wisely. He may be spouting foolishness. See, their consciences are free when Sosthenes speaks. But when Paul speaks, that's an entirely different matter. I think it's important for us to grasp especially in our postmodern context where authority is something of a dirty word. You know, perhaps you feel that Paul's uh, words to us in this letter don't come with the same weight and authority as an email from a friend might come to you. Or maybe you think Paul's message doesn't come with the comparative urgency of a three-paragraph Facebook rant that you find mildly informative. No. Paul... The Apostle Paul is the mouthpiece of Jesus Christ by the will of God so that when 1 Corinthians speaks to us, we should be glued to every word because every word originates ultimately not with Paul but with Jesus Christ of whose message Paul is the inspired herald. First thing off the top, the issue of authority. The second time the word call is used is in verse 2. And now Paul addresses the issue of identity. First authority, then identity. Look carefully at verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. He doesn't write to the church in Corinth, does he? Whom is he writing? He writes to the church of God that is in Corinth. I think that's significant. The word uh, translated church is ecclesia. 
It simply means assembly. It's from this verse that the assemblies of God got the name of their denomination. And there's, there are a variety of assemblies, a variety of community groups, a variety of affinity groups, whatever you want to call them. There's all kind of groups meeting in Corinth. But this ecclesia, this assembly has the distinction of being the ecclesia of God, the church of God. It's not the church of Paul or the church of the Corinthian leadership or the membership or even of the culture. The same way that the church in Leesburg, Virginia, is not the creation of our denomination. It's not defined by its pastors. I was going to have something in here about, you know, the church of Dave's or something. Um, It's not defined by its leaders or the culture or its members. It doesn't belong to us. We are the church of God. We are his. And then Paul focuses the camera lens so that we can see more. What is the church of God? What does it really look like? How do you distinguish it from those other assemblies? What is it that makes Potomac Hills distinct from the Rotary Club or the Urban League? Look at the text. The church of God, Paul says, is made up of those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints. Now, you may know the word sanctified and saint come from the same uh, Greek word. A saint is a sanctified one. It simply means to have been set apart, to have been consecrated. Remember when we went through Exodus, um, there were vessels and furniture, garments, the priests themselves, the Old Testament temple were set apart. They were consecrated, set aside, devoted to a sacred purpose. In the same way, like the priests in the temple, we've been consecrated and dedicated to a sacred purpose. And that is our fundamental identity. We have been designated a reserve for God. And today, people talk about identity and the politics of identity and all that, usually in terms of something that describes us. And I think for a Christian, virtually all of those descriptions are wrong. You're not identified by your sexuality. You're not identified by your vocation. You're identified because you belong to Jesus. That is your fundamental identity. And Paul tells us where and how that happens. Look back at verse 2. We're sanctified where? In Christ Jesus. God unites us to Christ through faith. We're planted into him. He's the holy one in him. We're consecrated, set apart. And he tells us how it happens. He says we're called to be saints. The sovereign, effective, irresistible call of God in the preaching of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit makes us saints. God and the preaching of the gospel applied by the Spirit of God makes us saints as he calls us into union with Christ. Now think for a minute about the Corinthians, what we know about them. They're fighting, they're squabbling among themselves, holding grudges, acting superior, suing one another, sleeping around, participating in pagan rituals, getting drunk at the Lord's table, and they're a mess. And yet, the Apostle Paul calls them saints. He calls them sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Now, I don't don't know about you, but I imagine you get up in the morning and you look in the mirror 
and you see a wicked, sinful, compromising screw-up full of lust and pride and anger and laziness and unbelief and judgmentalism and a thousand other things. Me too. Paul's saying that's not our identity. That may be what we do. That may be how we act. But as we cling to Jesus, sometimes desperately, sometimes brokenhearted, But as we cling to Jesus, Paul says, that's not who we are. We are sanctified in union with Christ by the powerful call of the Spirit of God. You are a saint. You are his, dedicated for his use and glory, consecrated to him. That's who you are. That's fundamental identity. So now Paul's saying to the Corinthians, and he's going to say a lot more in greater detail as we move through this letter, essentially, it's time to be who you are, to live out your identity before the world in the eyes of a holy God. Stop living that old life. That's not who you are, not anymore. Stop telling yourself otherwise. You're sanctified, so be holy. You're a saint in union with Christ. It's time to start living like it. He starts out, issue of authority, issue of identity. He says, Who you are in relationship to Christ defines your identity. None of that other stuff of the world. Certainly none of the issues and sins you struggle with define your identity. Jesus defines your identity. The third time the word call is used, I said we're going to spend all the time here, so don't panic because there's a lot more verses. Or you could panic, you know, go ahead. Third time clause used is at the end of verse 2. Paul is addressing the issues, I think they're twin issues of activity and unity. Uh, first has to do with our activity. It says, verse 2, we're called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So he's not saying that the church is marked by the fact that we occasionally pray. He's saying the life of the Christian should be summed up this way. This is a distinctive characteristic feature. They're always calling on Jesus. They live calling and clinging and being dependent on the name of Jesus. The great Presbyterian theologian Charles Hodge puts it this way. He says, Paul's phrase is not expressing so much an active prayer as it does an habitual state of mind. That's what Paul's saying. It's a habitual state of mind in the church to call on the name of the Lord Jesus. They're constantly calling. It's how they live. It's their stance. They're leaning on, resting on, calling on the name of Jesus in every circumstance, at every juncture. It's their first response, not last resort. So the question is, can that be said of us? That our most notable feature The great characteristic is that we habitually, instinctively call on the name of Jesus. What happens when fear strikes? Is it your instinct and habit to run to Jesus, or is he fifth, sixth, or seventh down the list of reactions that pass through your mind? Is he always on our lips, our hearts? Are we longing for more of him, all our hope for the future, growth, ministry, faithfulness, fruitfulness? It all rests on him. And then Paul emphasizes unity. Authority, identity, activity, unity. It's the other great fruit of the call of God that sets us apart 
uh, in Christ. We're, first of all, Jesus' people. We call on the name of Jesus. Then we're united. We're called saints, together with all those in every place. Call upon the name of Jesus. So there's an emphasis on unity, that we're sanctified in Christ. We're called to be a saint. That's a vertical implication. We call on Jesus. But there's also a horizontal implication. We do it together. Those things are always united, both those implications, vertical and horizontal. And uh, that's always um, together. And yet, this church is riddled with division and pride that's destroying the Corinthian church. Paul's saying that is incompatible with calling on Jesus and calling on Jesus together. So that's the opening. Biblical authority, gospel identity, prayerful activity, spiritual unity. But this church is still a mess. They're not doing any of that stuff or not very much and not very well. So what comes next? You sort of sit back, you're waiting for the rebukes and challenges and the exhortations to get delivered with both barrels. I mean, they deserve it. But Paul doesn't go there, at least not yet. Rather, he starts talking about gifts and giving. Verses 4 through 9. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. I'm just going to stop right there. Paul clearly has a lot to challenge the Corinthians about. I think it's fascinating he doesn't begin with any of their problems, and it's a long list. No rebuke. He begins by thanking God for them. And I can imagine even the Corinthian leaders were kind of bracing. We got a letter from Paul. This is not going to go well. And they're waiting for the harsh words. And how disarming it must have been to hear Paul begin, not with devastating critique, but this thoughtful word of thanksgiving to God betrays his great love for these people, despite their, all their mess and all their problems and issues. He's not playing games with them. He's not just trying to be nice. This is not the Pauline equivalent of the southern bless your heart. Uh, which really means we love you, but you're an idiot. Um, he means every word. He feels real gratitude to God for these believers. He invested a year and a half of his life in ministry there. But think of critique is easy, isn't it? Criticism comes easy. But cultivating a thankful heart for the people of God sitting around you in this church, that's the example Paul's setting before us. Is that how you think of Potomac Hills? Are those the first thoughts you think about our church? Are those the first words when you speak about our church? Are they words of thanksgiving? Or do you display a critical spirit that makes you more like the Corinthians than like the Apostle Paul? Paul begins by giving thanks for the evident work of grace he sees in their life. And he does so in this great prayer. And that's what verses 4 to 9 are. They're a great prayer. And yet it encourages me because uh, he's talking about the grace of God in their lives and what he's done through them and the lives of others. And, and I'm encouraged what God might yet do in my life and through me and in your life and through you. I think that's what Paul intends to happen as we hear him pray about the Corinthians. He wants to show us what grace did in their lives and we could be encouraged 
and hope what grace might do in our lives. And I think the most noticeable thing about the Christian life is fundamentally and supremely a Christ-centered life. To go through these verses, you hear again and again the name of Jesus. It's everywhere. Verse 4, the grace of God is given to the Corinthians in Christ Jesus. Verse 5, they're enriched in him in every way. Verse 6, the testimony confirmed among them is about Christ. Verse 7, they live waiting for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8, they're sustained to the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, our faithful God is the one who's called us into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. This prayer is saturated with Jesus. And it's a Christ-centered prayer. Paul gives thanks for the Corinthians. He's praying for them to live a Christ-centered life. Because everything in the Christian life is centered on, in some way, it's an aspect of or celebration of our union with Christ. So the grace we receive at the beginning, the grace we receive every step on the way, the grace we get on the end, we all receive it in Christ. The word of God, the testimony that's confirmed among us, that sustains us and strengthens us and nourishes us, is the testimony about Christ. And that which we look for and long for at the consummation of all things, our final destiny, is the revealing of Christ. And in a therapeutic age like ours, that's always trying to turn our attention inward, it's immensely helpful to be reminded the Christian life is centered elsewhere, not on the self, but on the Savior. Paul directs our gaze up and away to Jesus. We are in him. The testimony is about him. We wait for him. And then he says it's a grace-enriched uh, life. If you take out uh, the little parentheses of verse 6 and just read verses 4, 5, and 7, it says, The grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you are enriched in him, in all speech and knowledge, verse 7, so you are not lacking in any gift. The grace of God that was given to them in Christ has a particular result that Paul wants to emphasize. It's produced spiritual gifts especially in the areas of speech and knowledge. And so now he simply gives thanks that whatever issues there are in Corinth, God's enriching the lives of the church in that city through these gifts of grace. To be a Christian is to live enriched by the grace of God. It's a Christ-centered life, and we pray Christ-centered prayers. Do you see the sweep of Paul's argument here at the beginning? Biblical authority produces gospel identity. We are in Christ, saints, sanctified, set apart for Jesus. And that new gospel identity leads to prayerful activity. We cling to Christ. We're always calling on his name. And that brings about a profound spiritual unity that we're doing this together. Together, we're praying those Christ-centered prayers. Together, we're trying to live that Christ-centered life. Maybe you've been coming to church for years. And you've missed this. Maybe you're looking for comfort or healing for personal wholeness or relationships. Maybe church for you is about finding a place, building a community. Fair enough. I'm glad for those things. And, and you can find those things here, and I pray that you will. But hear me carefully, please. If that's all you're looking for, you're missing out. You're missing something, or more accurately, you're missing someone. Whatever you find in the church, 
Christians have found something infinitely more satisfying in Christ. A Christian is someone who's in Christ. And Paul's prayer here directs us to Christ. He would ask you that urgent question, are you in Christ? Do you have Jesus? Does Jesus have you? It's a vital question we have to answer. The Christian life is oriented towards Jesus. It is in Christ. We are waiting for him to come. It's a Christ-centered life. Is yours. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and I'll close, and we'll get ready for the Lord's Supper. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have once again spoken to us by your word, spoken to us by your son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and see our Savior. God, our Father, we bow before you. We confess that we often love ourselves in a way that allows us to justify to ourselves our lack of love for one another. And although we claim the name of Jesus, our hearts turn elsewhere when trouble comes. It's not our habit or instinct to call on the name of Jesus. And although you've made us saints in union uh, with Christ, we continue to define ourselves, uh, define ourselves by our old life rather than by our new life. And we've set aside the weight of biblical authority. So look for us to be the church, we pray, in mercy. Forgive us, work in the weeks and months ahead of us uh, through the book of 1 Corinthians. Teach us who we really are in Jesus. Strengthen us as we try to live that out, as we begin to get rewired by the gospel. Make use of us in ways that surpass our expectations in, in this community, in our workplace, family and friends, and all over. Grant that we may live like people who are called to be saints. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.